Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. Network said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. In the beginning, Sputnik cast a menacing shadow. The launch of the first man-made satellite in October 1957 gave birth to the space age and bloodied America's nose. It was a scary moment for many Americans, already accustomed to the palpable Cold War fear of fallout shelters and duck-and-cover drills. But in time, it would be clear the great Soviet achievement of Sputnik was the best thing that ever happened to American technology. The complacent U.S. needed a rifle and a wake-up call. Inspired by this seminal event, a West Virginia teenager and several of his friends began building their own rockets. Soon the whole town was invested in their mission. Few people outside Colwood cared or noticed, until decades later, when the young man's story became a best-selling memoir and a popular movie, transformed into an object lesson for a new generation of dreamers. Meet the man behind Rocket Boys and October Sky. It's great to have you with us today. Hope you're well. Well, thank you, Keith. Uh, I'm very well. So tell us about growing up in in Colwood, West Virginia. Well, uh, Colwood was a company town, which meant that uh, the coal company owned everything in town. It owned every house. It owned every street, every fence, every store. Um, all the adult males, including my father, worked for or in the coal mine. Um, every, <clears throat> every adult female um, was, um, was required to be either uh, married to a coal miner in Colwood or um, a school teacher. They did allow single uh, school teachers in there. As a matter of fact, the coal company paid them a little bit extra to come in. 
Uh, the coal company even owned a church. So we were whatever religion the coal company said that we were. We used to laugh and say we got the low bid religion, you know, whatever it was. Sometimes we were Methodists, sometimes we were Baptists. We never quite knew what we were going to be from year to year. Um, and um, but in terms of uh, being a, a, a kid growing up in Colwood, it was pretty cool. We were allowed to um, pretty much do whatever we wanted to do as long as we didn't burn anything down. And um, we played up in the mountains a lot. And um, I knew all the kids uh, from uh, from practically the day that we were born, uh, first through the ninth grade, we were all in the same school. And then we went over to the consolidated high school, Big Creek, uh, two mountains away. Um, so it was an interesting, interesting place to grow up when the, uh, when, uh, the coal fields were uh, vibrant with a lot of work going on. And uh, like I said, that's all we knew was uh, the coal mines, coal wood, and the mountains. When you started to, to age and, and you know see beyond uh, you know your own situation, what did coal represent to you? Did you feel trapped in that place? Uh, actually, I have to say that I did not feel particularly trapped in that I was a reader, as most of us were. Uh, we did have television. Television came in probably around 1955 in the Coldwood. They actually was with one of the very first cable TV. Um, setups because uh, you couldn't put an antenna on your house high enough to pick up television. So when the coal company started uh, selling televisions, they put in a cable uh, television thing and you had to pay a fee to the coal company to wire them in. So we, we were able to see the outside world through books and a little bit through, um, through television. So um, uh, in terms of being trapped, um, I always... Uh, uh, and a lot of the kids felt that uh, we were really being taught to leave because uh, most of our parents felt like that uh, there was no future in Colwood. You could already see that the coal mine was uh, playing out a little bit, but there were some exceptions to that. And that was, one of them was my father who believed he was a coal mine superintendent who believed that Colwood at least had another 50 to 60 years worth of coal in it. And he wanted the, the best and the brightest to stay there and, um, and operate the coal mine. Now, you had a complicated relationship with your father. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, um, the first place you have to understand is that my dad was a great intellectual. He, he read everything he possibly could read. He was probably one of the best mining engineers in the country, but he didn't have a college degree, which kind of weighed on him. He was trained... Uh, by a fellow by the name of Captain Laird, who was a Stanford University uh, mining engineer graduate and ran Colwood for many, many years. And uh, so uh, he was my dad's mentor. And he, uh, he put into my dad this love for the town of Colwood, which was more or less kind of a perfect uh, company town. And so, um, but my dad also had dreams of maybe being a star football player and he, he had to work in the mine when he was just a teenager. So he, he wasn't able to do that, but my brother came along and he was going to be the great football star. And it turned out that he was. So my dad really doted on my brother, paid very, very little attention to me. I was kind of a, just a little nearsighted, um, uh, squirt. And, uh, so it, um, it took a lot for me to do anything that he would pay attention to. And uh, the more complex relationship began in 1957 when I started building rockets because of Sputnik. 
And all of a sudden I was doing something that was almost engineering, which kind of interested him. But on the other hand, he had a responsibility to the town not to let uh, some boys stink it up with our, with our, uh, uh, with our rockets or burn it down. So uh, at that point, when I was in high school, he did start paying attention to me a little bit. And uh, the question was uh, in his mind, uh, maybe he maybe he misjudged me and maybe he could make me into a mining engineer like uh, like he wanted to be. Let's talk about Sputnik. I mean, uh, for people who were not around in 1957, and I'm one of them, that was such a cataclysmic event. Uh, tell me about the impact of Sputnik in 1957. Well, Sputnik was as if the Russian bear took a great big sledgehammer and hit Uncle Sam right in the nose. Um, it was it was not expected that um, the Russians would uh, launch the world's first Earth satellite. It always felt like that the United States was uh, leagues ahead of the Soviet Union in any uh, technolo technological uh, matter. And we were in the midst of a great Cold War with them at that time, where um, very, very potentially nuclear war could break out at, um, at any time. So Sputnik represented to the United States a failure of their technology uh, to let the Russians bound ahead of them. And of course, in the back of their mind, I'm sure up in the Pentagon was that, uh-oh, this means that they could deliver a nuclear rocket uh, on, on the United States. So it scared everybody to death. But um, for a lot of us uh, kids, who um, who had read a lot of science fiction growing up, and I did. I read a lot of science fiction. Um, it represented something that I never expected to see in my lifetime, and a lot of us didn't expect, and that was that something was actually sent into space. We figured maybe a satellite would be built and sent maybe you know, 50, 60 years in the future, if then people into space a thousand years in the future. So we, we had no idea that... Um, that this would happen during our lifetime. So it was very, very exciting uh, for us, even though we were we didn't like the Russians particularly doing it, uh, we were still very excited about it. And um, uh, there were all kinds of news articles and everything. And that's, that's why a lot of us decided, well, let's get involved in this space race and um, let's start building rockets. Well, obviously in from the long view, of course, Sputnik was one of the best things that ever happened to the USA. And, and you and your, your friends, they're, you're kind of a microcosm of a reaction to this. Um, so how did you come up with the idea to start building rockets? <laughs> well, um, again, I read so much science fiction and there were news articles and everything about rockets. And if you, uh, my idea was that, um, that I could maybe someday go work for Werner von Braun. He was... Um, Dr. Von Braun was, uh, was in, the, in these articles and he was saying that he could get something into space right away and if they would just let him do it. And so he became kind of the hero to, to a lot of kids. And so- and what, uh, what, did, what did Dr. Von Braun, what did he represent to you? Well, Dr. Von Braun at that time, of course, uh, he, um, he, he was kind of like the mad scientist, you know, he had this German accent, sounded really, really smart. He had been on uh, Disneyland. Disney had had him on television, and we didn't know anything really about his background in terms of World War II or anything like that. That's not the way it was presented to us. It was presented to us that he was just this really, really smart guy um, that sounded really smart, and that he he was working for the United States and. It, 
he could get us into space. So, and, and he was kind of a charismatic guy, you know, he's real good looking. And uh, so uh, a lot of kids just, wow, he became our, our hero and we wanted to be like him and we wanted to work for him. Uh, so that was my idea. I, I thought, well, maybe I could go work for Werner von Braun and, 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 and do something in space. And then it occurred to me that if I was going to do that, I might want to bring some credentials. And that's why it bubbled up into my mind. Well, I could build a rocket and uh, learn how to build a rocket. So I, I, I told my uh, parents that around the kitchen table at supper, one night, um, uh, it was probably just uh, a couple of weeks after uh, Sputnik, that I was going to build a rocket. My dad didn't say anything. I, I, he rarely lis listened to me at that time. My brother, the big football star, got all the girls. He just laughed. But my mom took a long look at me and she said, well, don't blow yourself up, which uh, I took as permission. And so the next thing, of course, um, I, I gathered a few boys together. We tried to figure out how to build a rocket. We, we found out that building a bomb was a lot easier than building a rocket. And I blew up my mom's rose garden fence, and um, uh, uh, which caused a lot of people in Colwood to think that maybe the Russians had decided to attack and, and it started with Colwood because it, it was at night and it was this huge explosion. And um, so my mom came out in the yard, took one look at what had happened to her beloved uh, rose gardens, rose garden and the fence. And uh, the other boys had run off. And that night she challenged me to build a real rocket because she said, I want to send you to college. Your dad doesn't think uh, anything about that, uh, about sending you to college. He doesn't think you're college material, but I've got enough money. I've got it saved up. And, it, and but he would have to co-sign any check. So why don't you just build a rocket that works and maybe, maybe we can convince your dad to uh, let you go to college. So that's what started that night, this um, almost three year career of me and the other boys uh, we named after our high school, Big Creek Missile Agency started building rockets. And I just have to interject here. You know, your mom comes off as such a wonderful character in your books. And, and, and I, there's this image that you paint of, of, of her painting this beach scene in your kitchen or living room, whatever it was. What do you think that represented to her? It represented uh, to my mom uh, this scene of Myrtle Beach, which she loved. She loved the beach. Um, and uh, when she got my dad to go to the beach, it was like um, he forgot about the coal mine at least for a week or two, and she had him all to herself. So it represented a couple of things, a, a um, uh, a chance to get out of Colwood, at least in her head, and maybe the future where she would not be in Colwood because she really, really disliked this company town. Now she grew up in um, in MacDowell County, the same county where Colwood was, in a even rougher uh, coal town. Uh, but my mom saw her be herself beyond that. Um, she also read extensively. Uh, she had talent as an artist. And she always wanted to do something uh, with her life other than just um, be the wife of some coal miner in West Virginia. So, um, so that's what that represented to her. And she had also been very proactive, not to get ahead of the story here, been very proactive in making sure that you went to college because you, because you forgot to apply. <laughs> right, I finally got around to writing about that uh, with, the, with the latest book, Don't Blow Yourself Up. Um, Which I so, recommend, by the way. It's a terrific read. Oh, thank you. So um, 
so yeah, uh, what happened was that um, for those of you know who know the Rocket Boy story, ultimately we progressed so far uh, with our rockets and um, we're building really sophisticated rockets that to because our teacher Miss Riley, who um, who we adored, um, wanted us to enter science fairs with these rockets, and that really wasn't our aim to to enter these science fairs. We just wanted to learn how to build a really cool rocket. Um, we entered these science fairs and ultimately went to the national science fair. And that was toward the end of my senior year in, uh, in high school. And so many things were happening so fast that um, I, even in the back of my mind was, well, what am I going to do after high school, but not enough to make me actually do anything about it. And I had applied to the Air Force Academy and been turned down by Vice President Nixon. So um, I just hadn't done anything on it. So my mom, uh, unbeknownst to me, actually applied for me to go to Virginia Tech, which was only 100 miles from, um, from Colwood, a lot easier to get to than West Virginia University, which was at that time, it took two days to get all the way up to Morgantown from Colwood. Also, my brother was on a football scholarship at Virginia Tech. Also, they had a great engineering school. So um, in the middle of the summer, I was working over at the gas station uh, she finally got around and telling me, well, you're going to Virginia Tech. So uh, I did. Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us, AmericanAchievers.us, or search for American Achievers at Patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you can access our exclusive monthly email newsletter, the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program, and the quarterly Zoom show American Achievers Green Room, where you can interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit AmericanAchievers.us and click on the Premium Membership button. Now back to the program. Tell me about the... uh the learning curve you had to go through in those two or three years on your rockets. I mean, it was almost like a Marshall Space Flight Center out here. I mean, paint that picture for me. (laughs) Right. Well, you you have to realize that we started with 0.00 knowledge of how to build a rocket, except we'd seen a picture of a rocket in Life magazine, and it appeared, uh, of course, that the pointy end was on top, and down at the bottom, there was like fire that came out of the bottom, and it had fins on it, sort of like little airplane wings, and that's all we knew, was just that picture. And it's not like you could and look this up on the internet, because the internet, no. ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> no, did not no exist. Internet. <laughs> no internet back then, and um, so we recruited, um, our first uh, approach to this was to recruit a really, really smart guy. Not Verna von Braun, but a, um, a young man by the name of Quentin Wilson, who was the prototypical nerd of all time. Uh, Big Creek, he was not a Colwood boy, so um, he was from a very, very poor little uh, coal uh, town called Bartley. And um, so, but he had this reputation of being really, really smart. Nobody much liked him. He carried this old beat up briefcase he probably found in a junkyard somewhere full of books. And um, and it was very difficult to talk to Quentin. And, uh, but I did, I pro- approached Quentin about, um, if he, uh, about rockets, if he'd like to join our cl- little club there. 
and um, and he agreed. But it turned out he knew a little bit about rockets. Uh, he knew the history. He knew that the Chinese had used black powder uh, many hundreds of years ago. And so that that was our first step. Was okay. Let's learn how to build uh, or make black powder. And uh, we uh, we were able to uh, look that up. Uh, that was pretty easy to look up in the library how to how to make black powder, but we didn't really know how to do it. We just had an idea. But anyway, we we knew its ingredients: potassium nitrate, which was saltpeter. We could get that in the company store in the drugstore. Uh, sulfur and the same thing, and then charcoal. Of course, charcoal is easily available. But we had to figure out how to grind it all up and and make it um, make it as powerful as we could. And then what was that little constriction at the bottom? We, t we uh, ultimately found out that was called a nozzle, but how do we do that? We went to, first thing I did was go to one of the machinists up at the machine shop and show, show him the picture and, and, and told him about the black powder and he suggested an aluminum tube and a wooden nose cone and solder the fin zone and maybe, you know, put solder, just use solder, which turned out to be not very good. But anyway, that's how we started. And we blew up a lot of, of rockets, but we finally uh, got that black powder uh, to work a little bit, but we knew we needed to progress beyond that. And uh, then our next progression was really uh, um, twofold. One was to change the propellant. We changed to um, what we called rocket candy as potassium nitrate and sugar, because we saw Miss Riley, our chemistry teacher, she burned potassium chlorate uh, and, and uh, sugar just to show us rapid oxidation. We couldn't get potassium chlorate, but we, we could get the nitrate. And so we started melting this stuff um, uh, we called rocket candy. And then she got us a book called Principles of Guided Missile Design, which I later saw in a PhD program for rocket science. And for that, we needed to know advanced mathematics. And so we ended up teaching ourselves calculus. And uh, so uh, and, and let's let's not let's not let's not gloss over that. You taught yourself <laughs> calculus. Right. Uh, in order to understand this book that Miss Riley bought for us out of her own funds, a very expensive book. So um, so out of her own funds, she she got this uh, this book. You open up the first page and you are what you see are these uh, uh, series of mathematical formula telling you how to build the perfect rocket nozzle based upon the propellant, the specific impulse of the, uh, the propellant and the exhaust velocity and all this. These are very complex uh, calculations. Uh, so we had to figure out a lot of things like, like specific impulse and so on of, of the propellants that we were using and then how to design a nozzle that would be best for it, blah, blah. So, but I was having trouble with algebra at the time, but this was beyond algebra. This was differential equations, this was calculus. And uh, so um, it, uh, Miss Riley ultimately uh, did uh, ask for and get for us calculus classes um, after hours, after she already had to argue with the, the school principal on this, but it turned out they only opened up a slot for, uh, for six because there were six of us boys and there was one girl who applied and she had better grades than I did, so she got the class. So <laughs> I had to end up um, essentially going to a book that my dad had uh, uh, where you, you could teach yourself calculus and then Quentin came over 
uh, on the weekends and tutored me on calculus so that uh, we could start doing these equations together. Well, and Ms. Riley, uh, talk about the influence of, of you know, you can teach, you can talk to so many people across the board who, who can point to, to one teacher who really had a fundamental impact on your life. Clearly, Ms. Riley was that person for you, right? Yeah, and actually, Ms. Riley sort of became an icon for teachers uh, around the country and the world, really, um, because of the, the book Rocket Boys and then the movie October Sky. Laura Dern played uh, Miss Riley in the movie. And uh, yeah, I mean, she, she clearly really, really um, loved teaching. And she loved her kids, and she wanted the very, very best for them. Now, now Miss Riley, Frida Riley was her full name, was um, the valedictorian at Big Creek High School um, some years before I was there, and then was the valedictorian at what was called Concord Teachers College at the time. So uh, she had excellent uh, credentials, but um, for family reasons, she came back and, and went back to that little high school, Big Creek High School and um, was there uh, for us at this, at this critical time. But Big Creek was known as an athletic school or really a football school. And if you, when you entered its um, front door, you saw from one end of the hall to the other, all of these trophies, these football, basketball, and track trophies. And Miss Riley felt like, especially with Sputnik, which really, really changed the educational system in the country and, and swerved for a while, uh, over to what they call STEM now, um, uh, that, um, that she felt like that there ought to be something in that big trophy case that represented uh, uh, something other than athletics, academics. And so her idea was that, um, and science fairs were getting to be a big thing. Her idea was that maybe these rocket boys that she felt like were trying to do something a little bit different could um, could maybe enter the county science fair and, and win some ribbon third place or something like that. And uh, she would convince Mr. Turner, the principal, to at least put that in this gigantic uh, trophy case. So that was her idea. She, she, like us, never had any idea that we would end up going to the national science fair. So, um, tell so me we, about, were, we, were, we were pretty happy about that, I guess. She tell, was. Anyway. Tell me about going to the Nationals. It's a defining moment in your life, and it's, a, it's wonderfully told in the book and, and the movie as well. Tell me about that. Yeah, it was a, it was a really big deal. I mean, uh, in the first place, uh, just, leave, just getting out of the coal fields was a big deal. And so uh, we had gone to the county science fair and won first place, and then we got to the state science fair and, and won first place. And so... Uh, only one person could go, uh, they only had enough money for one person to go to the Nationals, which was in Indianapolis, and so uh, uh, I was kind of the leader of the Big Creek Missile Agency, so I got to go, and it was a big deal. I mean, this was a massive auditorium up there where they had all of these uh, science fair exhibits from all over the country, and some of them, they had really, really spent a lot of money on their uh, exhibits. And um, one of them even had a monkey in it, which I was very impressed by. <laughs> so, um, and this was a monkey that was supposed to, they had them in a biosphere where it uh, closed off and it, it, uh, it would, I don't know if it really, really worked and hopefully the monkey was okay, but theoretically the monkey was in there and uh, the plant life was providing oxygen for the monkey. I don't know, but anyway, there he was. And I was very impressed by that and all of the, all of the exhibits. I didn't expect to win anything really. I was just happy to be there, but it turned out they, they, um, one, a couple of things happened. 
uh, that I write about in the book and uh, also in the movie. And that's the fact that I left all, I left my exhibit open and um, I didn't know, I didn't understand uh, uh, why most of the, uh, the kids, uh, the students uh, packed up their exhibit every night. And uh, so I thought, well, that was kind of silly because um, that meant you just had to put everything back up the next morning. So I didn't do it. And it turned out I found out why. And that's because, you know, there are thieves in the world. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, uh, a good part of my rocket exhibit disappeared. And um, so that's when I had to get on the horn and call back to Colwood because the judges were coming the next day. And uh, get them, then there was a strike going on at Colwood and it was a big deal that um, to get the machinists back to work. And my dad ended up doing that uh, at the behest of my mom uh, to very, very quickly crank out some more rocket nozzles for us and some tubes and put them on a trailway bus and, and send them up overnight. And amazingly, I got uh, everything in time and ended up winning this gold and silver medal um, for uh, propulsion there. They had different categories. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was a really, really big, big deal to bring that metal back. And, uh, Miss Riley, who had by then been diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease and knew that she was, she was not going to live much longer. She did end up actually, um, uh, living another eight years, but, um, she wasn't sure at that time. Nobody was, it was not curable. And so, um, it, it made us all really, really happy that we were able to bring that back that metal for her. And yeah, it ended up in the trophy case, but now I have it, I have it here and, uh, just need to figure out who I'm going to give it to someday. What did that stir inside you, that achievement? Well, I was, I was very, very proud. And, um, but you know, there were, there were many emotions on that. One of the things that we wanted to do, because during this three year, three years of building these rockets, we had a lot of help. It just wasn't us. It was uh, the machinists uh, in Colwood who would come in after hours and work on our rockets. And then, then they would improve them um, more than our designs, but they would meet our designs. And, um, and then come to all of our launches, our test launches, and then gradually over time during that during those years, more and more people from Colwood and around the county started to show up at uh, what we called Cape Colwood, a big, uh, what was called a slack dump of uh, coal tailings that um, that gave us a lot of room uh, to work with, and so. Um, uh, they came and were very, very supportive. All of our teachers were very, very supportive. Uh, most of the people in town were very, very supportive. My dad was, but only in the background. Um, he pretended not to like it, but in a lot of cases he came through for us. Like for instance, he allowed us to launch on Cape Colwood. Uh, so um, after we got the, the gold medal, we we wanted to do something for the town and we wanted to give back as much as we could. The other boys, some of the boys were going in the military. Some of the boys um, hoped to be able to go to, you know, work their way through college. We didn't get scholarships like they showed in the movie. Um, and so, but still we wanted, we were leaving. We, we knew we were leaving, but we wanted to give something back to the town. So we had a final day of launches and um, we had a number of rockets left over. And uh, so, and Miss Riley was there um, and most of the town. And ultimately my dad showed up just as they show in the movie and just as I write about in Rocket Boys. And um, so that's the first time he had seen it. He was very, very impressed. He had no idea that we were that sophisticated. 
and we let him uh, launch the last rocket, which was, uh, we had a moment. My dad and I had a, a, a very, very important moment um, that day. I love that moment, uh, both in the book and in the movie. You actually let him push the button, right? There's a, a closure, there's a redemption out of that moment. Uh, that's very human. Um, what did it stir in you? Yeah, you know, um, it, it was it was that moment. Now, it's not to mean that that from there on in, my dad and I had a perfect relationship. We didn't. Uh, I mean, he loved me and I loved him, but we we really had trouble communicating. But we communicated that day. There was no question about that. Uh, he was proud of what I had done, and um, I was so proud to have him to have him there. I have to tell you that I've uh, received many, many letters and emails from um, from folks who had distant fathers who loved them, but they were still distant. And um, especially for those of us who had fathers who grew up during the Depression and World War II, um, they, they were not big huggers or anything like that. They didn't tend to show their emotions very much. Um, so they were the letters and so on I've gotten from from um, people who had fathers like that. Um, they were really, really pleased that um, that my dad and I had that moment and they wished that they had had a moment like that with their father. But I can remember one specifically said I and his father was still alive, says, I'm going to go tell my father I love him, whether you like it or not. And uh, so I thought that was that was pretty cool. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. When you went off to, to VPI, um, did you understand that you weren't just going to college? You were kind of going into a new dimension that was about possibility. The, the, the sky was literally the limit for you now, and you were leaving behind a place that was very limiting. I did. I really did not understand it at that time because um, I just I, I hadn't done my proper research. I wasn't exactly sure. I knew I just wanted to go to engineering school. That's all I knew. And um, so where that would lead, in a way, I just felt like it was like a, a great big high school in another town, and I would be living there. I, uh, in the first place, Virginia Tech at that time, um, BPI as we called it then was a military college. So the first thing I had to do was adapt to the cadet corps. And then engineering school turned out to be really, really tough. Um, what was the toughest part of it? What um, challenged you the most? I would say, I would say the toughest part was that um, I had trouble just studying theory without any practicality, because I just spent these three years really working nuts and bolts and wanting and passionate about what I was doing. Uh, I was willing, you know, to teach myself calculus if that's what it took, because it, I, it was for a purpose. It was for learning how to build these rockets. And so uh, all that was behind me at that point, all that nuts and bolts feeling hands-on learning and now all of a sudden it was just book, books, books and uh, professors, distant professors. You, you went into these great big vast classrooms. The, you could hardly see the professor down there. His back turned to you scribbling all over the uh, blackboard uh, in a drone. And it was like, you know, uh, so I, I 
from being so connected to my teachers for the 12 years I went to Colwood and Big Creek High School, I felt disconnected uh, from them. And um, uh, and then uh, the cadet corps took my time. I liked it, but it did take my time. So it took me a while, really. And ultimately, what what turned things around for me at Virginia Tech was I I found another passionate thing that had to do with engineering, and that was to build this uh, big cannon. Uh, because um, because our rival, our arch rival, Virginia Military Institute, had a little cannon. We didn't have one. And so a few of us, very much like the Rocket Boys story, decided, okay, well, we're going to build our own cannon. And we did. And so in the process of doing that, I went over to the Industrial and Systems Engineering Department. Um, when lo and behold, they had machine shops and everything like I was used to working with the Rocket Boys. So I actually switched over to the uh, IE department and uh, to help me build that cannon. And then I just fell in love with engineering all over again at that point. And what was your ambition at that point within engineering? I still, you know, I, I still somehow wanted to get into the space business. Um, the, um, of and course, we're, and we're right in the middle of, of, uh, of Gemini at this point, I guess about this time. Uh, um, so, you know, we're heading to the moon and you, you're excited about that, right? Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, we all were, uh, we kept up with it. The, uh, of course, uh, Yuri Gagarin went into orbit first, the Russians beat us there, but we were coming along and it was kind of exciting. It really was exciting. It was space race. Uh, we had these seven wonderful uh, astronauts that uh, had been picked and then the Mercury um, program followed by the Gemini program. And we knew that out there somewhere was the Apollo program that we JFK has said we're going to go to the moon. He was assassinated while I was at Virginia Tech, uh, but um, um, the, the Apollo kept going. So that was out there somewhere, but also at that same time was Vietnam. So you had these two major, major events, one very positive, one quite negative uh, in a, going on in the United States at that time. And for uh, most young men, uh, at that time, you knew one way or the other that Vietnam was going to affect you. And so I was in a military college. So I knew, I suspected that the first thing I was going to do before I ever got a chance to work in the space business, if I ever did, was uh, I had a military obligation and that was probably going to mean Vietnam. And it did. And uh, I don't have to tell you what the life expectancy of a, uh, of a lieutenant in the infantry was in Vietnam. Were you scared? You know, uh, this is why you send young men into combat. I was not particularly scared. Now I would be. <laughs> um, so, but the ramifications of it, um, there was a lot of training before I went to Vietnam. Um, and so you're, you feel like that you're prepared once you're over there. And um, so uh, my primary, what I did when I went to Vietnam was I realized that it was kind of a situa same situation. I started really to identify with my dad uh, in that my dad was responsible for men going into the coal mine and every day it was his responsibility to keep them safe. And so um, that's what I had to do. Uh, that's the way I took it was to keep my men as safe as I possibly could. So that's, that was my approach to my year in Vietnam. How did Vietnam experience um, shape the rest of your life? How did it shape the way you thought? 
you know, at the time, I I wouldn't have thought that it shaped shaped it at all. I just uh, I put my year in. I did have I saw um, a lot of action. I was during the Tet Offensive, the Battle of Docto. Um, I was involved with um, quite a firefight down in uh, Bamatuit. Uh, at the end of my my year there, but I had put my time in and I felt like that I could put it behind me. And as soon as I got back, I did my very, very best mentally to just put it behind me and to move ahead. But I realized uh, when I was writing the new book, uh, Don't Blow Yourself Up, that I was really affected by it. I came back and I just didn't know what to do with myself. Um, and, um, of course, I, I, I didn't end up going to work for NASA immediately. NASA, by then, was actually letting engineers go. The Apollo program had been successful, and they really didn't need all those engineers. So it was really not an opportunity for me to go into the space business. Uh, so I did um, end up starting working for the Army Missile Command, which was a little bit, you know, um, well, did include rockets, sort of, uh, and military systems. Uh, but um, I also wanted to write, and I had written for the college newspaper at Virginia Tech, and I realized that that, that was something that I really missed. And so, and I also became very interested, like my mom, in uh, in uh, the oceans and the beaches and so on. So I eventually became a scuba instructor, and I combined scuba. Uh, wreck diving and writing all the while I was working for, our, for the Army Missile Command. So I had a lot of things going and that kind of got me out of that post-Vietnam uh, funk, if you will. But, um, but it, um, that was it, was, was uh, kind of, um, uh, when you're in a combat situation, you're always on alert and all of a sudden you come back to the United States and uh, you know people are just going to the store and just doing normal things. It's really, really hard sometimes for a combat veteran to kind of come down off that high, if you will. How long did it take you to, to pull out of that? <laughs> well, I still don't like to walk on, uh, on uh, trails where the bush is too close. <laughs> so I don't know that you ever get over that. Uh, so it's, uh, and that's it uh, for me. I mean, I think that's a lot of the uh, syndrome that, uh, that veterans bring back is that you're on for so long on this constant alert um, that, um, that maybe you never really totally get over it. Well, let's see. I think you spent about a decade with the U.S. Army Missile Command, right? Literally walking in the Von Brown's footsteps there in Huntsville. Um, and, that's right. And that's right. Although, um, of course, Vernon Von Braun worked on the big rocket systems there, and we were working on the smaller ones, the anti-tank systems and so on, uh, that are kind of uh, important uh, today. Uh, but ultimately, I didn't really feel like I was going very, very far in my career. Again, I, uh, I had this other career. I was a scuba instructor. Um, I still had maybe an idea that I'd like to work for NASA if they ever opened anything up. Um, but I just uh, decided to change things, um, and I ended up taking a job still with the Army, but over in Germany uh, for three years with the 7th Army Training Command, and there I started putting, um, I'd had one class at Virginia Tech on computers, uh, how to operate an IBM 1620 and how to write Fortran, and I got over there in Germany, and um, I was working for the Corps of Engineers really over there, and they had this big logistics problem 
trying to do everything manually. They've been doing it for years. They would lose track of their projects and so on. And, and I suggested that maybe we could computerize all that. So uh, I ended up uh, writing code uh, for a big um, uh, logistics tracking system. And um, that, oddly enough, it was one of the very first ones ever that had been created within a Department of Defense way out in the on the frontiers of Germany, a little place called Grafenbeer. Um, that's really what attracted uh, NASA's attention to me, not my rocket building, but the fact that I had uh, created this logistical system. And uh, Marshall Space Flight Center had, a, uh, they were in charge of developing the Space Lab, which was a little laboratory uh, that went in the back, uh, in the cargo bay of the space shuttle. And they were having a lot of trouble keeping track of all the nuts and bolts because it was being built by the Europeans, it designed by NASA, but built by the Europeans. And so, um, so that's why Marshall Space Flight Center hired me. I implemented the system for Space Lab within a year and then volunteered right out of there um, to go work for the training, the astronaut training people, which as a scuba instructor, I'd, I'd had some experience training um, uh, people over many years. And then also working in a big neutral buoyancy simulator uh, there in Huntsville. So that's how uh, ultimately I ended up starting to work for NASA just as a space shuttle started to fly in 1981. Now, I'm sure at the time you're thinking, okay, this is just one job leading to another. But you finally got to NASA. I mean, it took you a long time, but you finally got there. How did that feel? Well, it felt great. I loved it. I, you know, I like to say that it, um, every day I worked for NASA, I'd get up in the morning and say, oh, boy, I get to go work for NASA today. And uh, it was fun. Um, there were, of course, uh, and I write about that in the new book, that um, I trained the astronauts, uh, which sometimes got really complicated. I went over to Japan uh, trained the first uh, Japanese astronauts, ran into a big uh, culture shock over there, especially bringing American astronauts who didn't really fit in very well with the Japanese way of training. I was their training manager. Uh, I mean, looking back on it, though, um, it was a challenge. It was definitely a challenge. And sometimes I get pretty upset the way things were going and get into trouble. But, you know, that's all part and parcel of it. Ultimately, I was working for NASA. I was uh, training these astronauts to go into space and um, meeting all these, these scientists. We call them principal investigators, PIs, learning all of their experiments, uh, working on console while they were in orbit. I was a crew interface coordinator. I talked to them, the astronauts, while they were in orbit. So it was really, really a dream job in, in so many ways. Now you just have to pinch yourself at some point. Okay, you're a middle-aged guy. You, you've got a very tough job. But you have to think about where you started at the, the beginning of this dream. And this is a realization. <laughs> and God, this is America. Well, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it, it could have so very easily not happened. Uh, there were so many decisions that I made, and some of them weren't, at the time, I thought particularly good decisions. But if I hadn't made the, that decision um, at that time, uh, like, you know, going over to Germany and uh, this, uh, this logistical system needed to be done, and then just uh, NASA starting flying the shuttle and the space lab not needing me, uh, it would not have happened. I, uh, I sometimes say I think uh, God knew that ultimately I was going to write Rocket Boys and I needed a good ending. It would not have been a good ending. If I, see, now you're thinking like a writer, say, see? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it wouldn't have been a good ending if I hadn't ended up working for NASA. It really wouldn't, you know, even though everything that happened in Colwood, building those rockets would have still been true. 
if I couldn't have ended it by saying, well, and then I ended up working for NASA. So, um, so I think, um, I really do think what I call kismet, that that which controls our lives, that perhaps we is beyond what is natural into the supernatural. And uh, some folks would call that God's will, or um, it could be. But anyway, I do think that there is, there are things that go on in our lives that, um, that we don't totally understand that are just meant to be, and this was meant to be. What was the toughest part of the crew tra- training? Because that uh, interviewed a number of astronauts through the years. That's critical. Well, the toughest part is um, you have to, first place you have to understand that astronauts are just people. And, uh, and yeah, they're generally accomplished people. They're, they're driven people in a lot of ways, but they do have problems. And, uh, and when you train them, then you are right there with them um, all the time. And you've, you discover well you know there's something bothering this astronaut or somebody there's some reason that they're that they are not uh, accomplishing what you want them to accomplish there was conflict be- between them again you're 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 talking about it took us 18 months to to train an astronaut like for a space lab mission which meant uh, three highly competitive individuals were essentially challenged over an 18 month period to excel and to be but be with each other that almost that entire time and they probably didn't know each other that well before they were sent off to do this now for me i was training and uh, with space lab j which was the international mission uh so you have three com- very competitive individuals who maybe really did not want to go spend all these months in in uh, japan because there were problems at home and so on. Uh, so um, uh, motivating people who you think would automatically be motivating and being a train manager, you're you not over them, you can't make them do anything. Uh, so that's one of the challenges really, um, uh, just kind of steering it along and working with the, uh, with the scientists who are also trying to train these uh, astronauts to do these things, to work on their experiments, which is all important to them. If these experiments don't go well, then they've wasted years and years and years of their lives. So it really, really, ha- and they only got this one shot, uh, um, uh, this one flight to make their experiment work. So there's just tons of pressure on everybody to make, and everything has to work perfectly. And generally it does, but you can imagine during those 18, and sometimes more than that, these missions would get slipped sometimes, like Space Lab J got slipped years because of the Challenger accident um that um, so you had all of this pressure constantly to make everything perfect in an imperfect world what's the most important lesson you've learned about chasing success well um i like to say you know the success is there, there are these three p's of success and um one of them, the first ones is is a passion for what you're doing if you don't really have the passion then success may occur, but it's not, it's absolutely not guaranteed unless somebody's really pushing you. So uh, you want to have a passion for what you're doing. The second part, and that's what the rocket boys had, you know, we had a passion for building these rockets. So that related, and that caused us to want to, um, to learn things that perhaps we would not have been able to learn otherwise. And the second um, would be planning. 
it's okay uh, to have passion. It's wonderful to have passion, but if you don't have a plan, then uh, how can you carry that forward? So that's what Miss Riley did for us. She got us that book, uh, Principles of Guided Missile Design. That gave us a plan. If we could learn what was in there, we could build a rocket. And then ultimately, uh, the third P of the three, what I call the three P's of success is perseverance. You've got to have perseverance. You've got, you've got to realize that, yeah, you may have all the passion in the world. You may have a great plan, but it, they're probably going to be um, some things happen along the way that's going to have to cause you to modify that plan a little bit and go in a different direction for a while that you maybe in a direction you don't want to go. So you got to have perseverance. You just got to stick at it. And that's, you know, I felt like that, um, well, uh, for instance, in my writing career, I think I'm a pretty good writer, but I'm, I'm probably not the, the best writer I've ever known, but I get published and they don't. And that's the reason for that is because I, I stick to it. Uh, I persevere in my writing and uh, maybe some very talented writers uh, just, it's, um, they just don't have, you've got to be willing to fail uh, as a writer um and uh and keep trying and um and and they don't they just they just drop away so passion planning and perseverance uh, i think wins out every time you started writing uh, about scuba and then you moved into military history you've written novels been very successful in all of these things but why did you eventually decide to write rocket poise what was it what uh what was behind that at that point yeah, I wrote this for the first book was a book called Torpedo Junction. And I spent, you know, over a decade uh, researching that. And that was about the, of all things, the German U-boats, uh, the battles against the German U-boats up and down the East Coast during World War II. And that was because I was writing about wreck diving for a variety of different magazines back in the 70s. And I was, I found out that, um, that there uh, were these U-boat wrecks. I went up there and researched it. And ultimately that, again, that led to Torpedo Junction. That came out in 1989, very successful American history, uh, uh, military history bestseller, still in print by the way. And, uh, but 1989 was about when I started uh, training the, uh, the Japanese astronauts. So that meant um, all of a sudden I had, I had something that I just loved doing and um, that after Space Lab J became the Hubble Space Telescope, where we had to go fix the Hubble. And I ended up on a team that trained uh, Story Musgrave, Kathy Thornton, and the, uh, Jeff Hoffman to go up and, and uh, fix the Hubble Space Telescope, which meant a lot of hours underwater. And so, and I was also an active scuba instructor at that time, blah, blah. I had a lot to do. So I didn't, um, I didn't have another book in me that I knew of, but I was writing for a variety of different magazines, just short articles. And I wrote article for like on the neutral buoyancy simulator for Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine. And they liked uh, some of the stuff that I was doing. And so uh, one night in 1994, I got a call from the editor of Air and Space Magazine, uh, Pat Trenner. And she asked me if, if I'd submit a, just a 2000 word article. They needed something um, fairly soon. They knew, she said, I, we know you're a fast writer, Homer. And, and so what do you have? And I said, and all of a sudden for some reason, well, um, I had opened up some boxes that my parents had sent to me just right before my dad died. And uh, one of those boxes included uh, the only uh, 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 rocket nozzle, the only surviving piece of the rockets from the Colwood days. Um, and I had that rocket nozzle and my dad is the one that actually had kept it all those years. 
My dad didn't know it, but there it was. And I was using it for a paperweight. And when she asked me about a 2000 word article, could I write it right away? I looked over at that paperweight, that nozzle. And I said, Pat, I could write you 2000 words on when I was a kid in, um, in the coal fields of West Virginia and built rockets. And, and she was completely, totally, utterly underwhelmed with this idea, but I did it anyway. Uh, and as I wrote it, um, uh, things that I had forgotten, and I really had forgotten so much they just came just pouring out of my mind and i was able to write 2000 words real really easy about building these rockets and when that article came out it was this major hit and uh, i you know, i got they huge with um, with letters and calls and um, and and um, one of them was from um, a small producer in hollywood who asked if he could make a movie just based on the article and I knew better than that. And so um, that's, and he asked, you know, are you going to write a book about this? And I said, well, I am now. And so. Um, Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I had to start from scratch. And um, so, you know, I lined up, uh, I, I was known a little bit for writing Torpedo Junction. So ultimately I was able to get, I had to get two agents, went out in Hollywood to kind of field all the requests for um, make a movie. And then also a literary agent, Frank Wyman, up in New York, to, um, to after I had written it, and it took me a couple of years to write it. I made some false starts doing it, um, that um, that I was able to to write this book, and um, and it just um, it was a great journey for me. Um, I like to say I got a million dollars worth of psychotherapy I didn't even know I needed when I wrote Rocket Boys. So well, um, I just have to ask. You know, as a writer, I just have to ask, you know, what what's going through your head when you're sitting down, whatever your process is, you're sitting down at the computer or the typewriter, whatever it was at that point, you're writing this. Um, is it is it cathartic? Is it painful? Is it joyous? Uh, what is it? Or is it all those things? I, I don't think it's ever painful. I mean, I love to write. Um, I don't, it, it could be cathartic. That, it probably that, that, was. that particular story, because you're looking back at your life and, and you know how it's turned out. But how, Yeah, I mean, but that's why I say I got a million dollars worth of psychotherapy is because um, I had to go back. And I, again, um, I put a lot of these things out of my mind. It was very, very busy during, you know, in Vietnam and then... Uh, and um, working for the Missile Command, and then writing, and then uh, uh, NASA, and all that. So uh, yeah, I had to go back, and I guess maybe it was uh, cathartic in that I had to go back and um, be that boy again. Now, that was the only really good way to write Rocket Boys. Uh, at first, I started out writing that, okay, I'm this great NASA engineer, and I'm going to look back. I'm going to write a little bit about my work at NASA and then compare that to building rockets back in coal, that, the coal wood, and that just didn't work. And I I'd written 100 pages or more, and I just threw it away. I realized it didn't work, and I had to start all over again doing what I really, really didn't want to do, and that was to get inside the head of that boy and uh, let him tell the story. And so, yeah, that was that was a little bit tough. Uh, the writing is the writing is fun, but but when you're writing a memoir, um, you have to take yourself back and you have to be very honest with yourself, not only just your successes, but also your failures. And all that has to come out um, uh, in, in um, you know, just ink on on paper. Somehow you have to bring out 
all of that, all of the emotion that uh, a boy 14 through 17 year old would feel. And so it's just more than building rockets. It was also the family experience, my relationship, with my dad, my relationship with the other boys, um, with girls, you know, we're just finding girls and then the teachers and so on. So all of that comes out in this story. So um, the movie is really kind of a high, high level version of it. And I think the, the book goes into um, not only more detail, but it's much more power, powerful for folks emotionally to read. Did that book help you deal with your feelings about your father? Yeah, um, it, it did. It really crystallized um, the feelings that I had for my dad. And, um, and then this next time when I, well, I've, I've written like four memoirs so far, uh, Rocket Boys, The Coldwood Way, Sky Stone, and now the latest Don't Blow Yourself Up. And in every one of them, I really think my dad turns out to be the hero. And uh, so I didn't realize that when I started uh, writing that, how much that he had done and how he really affected my life uh, until I went back and examined it. And I think that's true. You know, everybody probably should write their own memoir. If even if they don't get published, they can go back and examine their life and see who was really important uh, and who really, really affected me and um, and made me into the person I became. The Coldwood series, what do you want people to take away from, from those books? Well, I, of course, I want them to uh, be entertained. We always write <laughs> for that purpose. I, I want them to turn the page and um, see what's going to happen. But at the same time, I want them to feel um, what it was like growing up uh, in Coldwood. Um, and to understand, uh, to get beyond the stereotype of the uh, coal miner being, uh, you know, just uh, uh, kind of an ignorant person, very strong, but, um, but not particularly bright and, uh, and everybody dirty and nasty. And, and, uh, and it wasn't that way at all. I mean, to be a coal miner, you got to be a pretty smart person. You've got to really, really know a lot about uh, um, uh, mechanical things and understand the geology of the earth. And uh, there are just many, many things that coal miners have to know. So I want them to understand that, understand the dynamics of living in a small town like that and um, how, how ultimately we all supported each other. So I just want them to feel the warmth uh, of uh, growing up in a small town like that, but and to, to meet the real people, not the stereotypes, but the real people. And um, also just to understand um, how um, my particular gratitude at, um, at uh, being brought up there and, uh, and being um, uh, taught by the great values that, uh, that these people uh, gave me. And what, what were those defining values? How would you characterize those? Well, I read a, another book called We Are Not Afraid. And um, in there, I did, uh, that's another thing. This was, I wrote this book right after 9-11. And of course, a lot of people were just scared all the time after 9-11. I could have written it after the most recent pandemic because uh, we also had a lot of people that are just walk around being scared all the time. And uh, I wanted to bring out um, to the country and to the world the values of the people of Colwood and why they should have been scared every day of their life because every day um, the man got up and went to work in this deep, dark, dirty coal mine 
there was no guarantee that 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 um, that there wouldn't be an accident. And also, they lived in a town where if there was an accident, if the coal miner uh, was killed or or so injured that they couldn't work, then they had to actually leave their homes and go somewhere else. They 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 had to leave Colwood. So it was kind of a prescription for fear. But nobody that I knew growing up um, uh, was fearful. They were, so their values were this. They were proud of who they were. They were proud that they were coal miners. They were delivering coal to the nation's steel mills to make the country strong. They stood up for what they believed. They weren't afraid to, it didn't matter if you were just a, the lowliest coal miner in town or the superintendent, you told each other pretty much what you thought, what you believed, but you learned how to do that in a, in a respectful manner. Um, uh, they kept their families together and that, that was very, very important to them. Families were sacred to them and whatever it took uh, to keep the family together, they would do it. And um, they were also, uh, they trusted in God, uh, but they knew that they needed to rely on themselves. So they had faith, but at the same time, they knew that ultimately it was up to them uh, how they led their lives. So they're proud of who they were, they stood up for what they believed, they kept their families together, and they trusted in God, but relied on themselves. So that's, those were the values they taught me. When you first saw your story portrayed on the big screen. How did it hit you? Well, I didn't think that I would be as affected as I was. Um, I was, um, of course, it was based on on my book, and um, I worked with the screenplay writer, Lewis Kulick, who ended up writing a great screenplay, argued with him a lot about it, but he did end up writing a great screenplay. And uh, Joe Johnson, the director, Chuck Gordon, a producer, they all just loved this story and they, they meant to bring it to the silver screen in the best way that they possibly could. I was a consultant. I was allowed to be on set. My wife and I were uh, allowed to be on set um, uh, anytime that we wanted to be. Uh, so I was, I, I guess, about 80% of the movie, I was up there. Uh, it was filmed in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, or, or close by, because it looked a lot about, uh, like uh, West Virginia, but still had, um, still had places where people could stay. Uh, so, so I was thoroughly familiar with the filming and the scenes and knew Jake Gyllenhaal and all the boys and Chris Cooper played my dad and, and uh, Natalie Kennedy played my mom. So I knew all that, but I hadn't seen it an edited version. So the first time I saw an edited version, I just, my heart was in my mouth the whole time. And I was affected by it. I was kind of just shaking uh, at it. It's hard, so hard to believe. In a lot of ways, it's still kind of hard to believe that a portion of my life was made into a major motion picture. Uh, I've seen the movie, I would let less than 20 times. And that's because, <laughs> um, but um, I've seen it, uh, for instance, I've worked with, um, with uh, Wounded Warriors and um, they, they like to show the movie and, and then ask me questions about it. So, um, so I've viewed it with them a few times and uh, sometimes I'll be, I'll be uh, surfing the, the uh, television and, and come across it that they're showing October Sky and I'll sit there and watch a little bit of it. And, uh, so it's just still pretty amazing that, that, that this happened. Do you ever allow yourself to think, what if you hadn't won that science fair? What if you had never been able to leave Colwood? 
Well, um, I just don't think that that was ever going to happen, Keith, because uh, my mom was bound to determine that I was going to leave coal. <laughs> so uh, it, no matter what my dad wanted, and my dad, I mean, um, uh, actually, I mean, the movie made it out a little bit different than where it really was. My dad wanted me to be an, a mining engineer, and then he wanted me to come back and take his job. Uh, that was essentially the way my dad uh, looked at it because he felt like that it was a good life that living in a, a small town, a company town like that was a good life. Uh, and one that, um, that challenged an engineer and a manager in such a way that, uh, he thought was just really, really good for a man. And so, but my mom knew better and most of the moms in town knew better. They could see if it just that coal wasn't going to be around forever they could start they could see it and uh, if nobody else could if their men couldn't see it they could and so uh, they were bound and determined that we would uh, we would leave coal wood and I would say it very interestingly um, it worked because 80% uh, of my coal wood class went to and graduated from college 80% uh, that's so, remarkable. Uh, that, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's not the high school. The high school, uh, again, that drew from uh, coal towns all around the county, uh, but it was for coal wood. And again, coal wood was this perfect company town, which meant that it was a really, really tight community. And when an idea got out there and ideas got out to most of the women that, you know what, our kids should do better than us and but they can't do it in this town they've got to leave whether they like it or not so really they were the impetus for us uh, getting out of course there wasn't a lot of money necessarily for that to happen so the boys ended up uh, i would say most of them ended up going in the military where they ended up with the gi bill but they still had that impetus that academic impetus to once they got out of the military to uh to use the GI Bill to go to college. And a lot of the, um, the women uh, went off to Washington, D.C., where they got good government jobs. The government really liked these kids coming out of Colwood because they were patriotic, they were smart, you know, and uh, they, didn't have, they didn't have any baggage, really. Um, and so they, were, they hired them left and right, and they made enough money to then go off to college. So that's how, that's how all that happened. And yet, it seems to me that all these years later, um, you have this, you have this love for Colwood and what it represented in these other ways. I do, and I think most of the kids do, because um, again, we grew up in the 1950s. This was like the golden age of rock and roll. Um, our parents had been through hell, really, you know, the Depression and World War II. So um, we were probably spoiled a little bit, even in the coal towns, you know and um, made to feel very, very special. And we, once we left the town and went out into the wider world and looked back, we realized, my goodness, um, most people just didn't have a life like we did where we just, we knew everybody, everybody knew us, they looked after us um, and we grew up together and we just formed these lifelong uh, friendships, relationships. And uh, so we, we just really related to each other. And then um, over the years, also looking back, we saw it all start to fall apart. And um, 
where um, the the coal, the steel steel mills left. Most of our, our coal went for steel, not for power uh, or energy, but to make steel. So when all the steel uh, mills started shutting down and everything moving overseas, then that affected where we grew up so much so that um, you know um, the where Colwood was like 2,000 people when I grew up it's got maybe 200 in it now uh, and that's true for the whole county and and everything that um, the, all the coal fields the people just left because there were no jobs and the people left behind were in a really really serious situation with no jobs no money and of course, then drugs started to invade. And so we look back on what this life that we had there was so completely, utterly devastated. And so we have a lot of heartache about that. And going back is tough. It really is tough. Uh, but we do go back and do what we can. There's been a Rocket Boys October Sky Festival for years and years in Southern West Virginia. It's being held in Beckley now, and um, which is um, a, a small city close to where I grew up. And so we try to support that as much as we possibly can. Thanks to Lane McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American Achiever.